You could keep your Bibles turned to Isaiah chapter 53, because that's where we're going to be today. I want to begin with a quote by A.W. Tozer, my man. I love him. This guy uh, wrote during the 50s and 60s, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, early 60s. I believe he died in 1963. But man, oh man, did he have a perspective on the church. A.W. Tozer says this in his book, The Crucified Life. Christianity rests upon one foundation, Jesus Christ. Before anyone can understand the depth of the Christian experience and the dynamics of living the crucified life, this foundation needs to be established. He goes on to say, the question is not what you think of Christianity, but what do you think of Christ? And what are you going to do about Him? Profound words from a very profound man, A.W. I can't believe we're already in March. We're in the middle of March already. The Holy Week is just a few weeks away. It begins on Sunday, March 29th with uh, Palm Sunday. And then we have our Good Friday service on Friday night, uh, April 2nd at 7 p.m. We'll be here, followed by our resurrection uh, service on Sunday, April 4th. Those of you who have known me know that I truly believe it is a holy week and set apart unto the Lord. These are days as we study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that to the church are very meaningful and very, very profound. And um, it's a shame that many of these, you know, the holy week is disregarded by many with religious tradition and even pagan practices, you know, the Easter bunny and all the other different things that have found its way in. By the way, you ever see any, all the Christian holidays that are holy always get integrated with something else, right? So, but my heart is that if we are going to be a people of God, if we are a people who love Christ and desire His glory, then it is imperative that our affection for Christ burns brightly. we got to get out of this dull Christianity and into the fullness of the knowledge of God. So for the next two weeks, to prepare us for the Holy Week, I am preaching two sermons entitled, The Beautiful Savior. And it's an overview of Isaiah 53. And it is my prayer that several things will be accomplished through this sermon series. One, that the glory of God would be made manifest here in the church. Number two, that our hearts would be enraptured with the beauty, the majesty, the glory of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And that as a result, we all would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that God would do a work of revival in our midst, and that each and every heart be opened to the leading of the Holy Spirit, open unto repentance, open unto restoration, opened unto salvation. If we really are going to contend for the faith and win the loss for Christ, then the object of our affection has to be alive in our hearts. It has to be alive in our hearts. Vibrant in our souls. 
And we esteem God for His worth. We esteem Him. We desire Him. We love Him. Then and only then will our words carry the conviction. Then and only then will our words carry the authority and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that when we speak the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, it will indeed come forth not with intellectual fervor, but with the fervor of a soul that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've got to transfer the theological truths to apprehend them by faith so that Christ is indeed our heart and our life and our desire. So today, we're going to look at the beautiful Savior. And part one of this is going to be, we're going to look at Christ as our substitution. Next week, we're going to look at the beautiful Savior. And we're going to look at Christ as our satisfaction, our joy in everything we do. So I pray that you will march with me in this beautiful journey. This is very humbling. As I came to prepare this week, I said, Lord, how do I, how do I as a human being be able to articulate the beauty of Christ? And I came to a conclusion. I can't unless the Holy Spirit grant His anointing and grant His words. So keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 53. I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Isaiah. It was written approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah means the salvation of Jehovah. That's what Isaiah means. The theme of the book is the holiness of God. It's the holiness of God. We see that jumping out right there in chapter 6 when, when Isaiah has the vision. He's taken up. He sees the Lord in the temple and he sees the angels flying back crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The author is the prophet Isaiah. His name was Isaiah ben Amuz. Ben in Hebrew means son of. So ben Amuz. And he was a resident of Jerusalem and he was a cousin of of King Uzziah from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet. He's the Old Testament evangelical prophet. And the prophet's role was really twofold. Number one, it was to foretell. It was to speak from God to the people. And the prophets always said, Thus saith the Lord. And there was a very stringent test for a prophet. Not like today. Anybody today could say they're a prophet. You know, it was amazed me that before the election, all these prophets were saying, God spoke to me and President Trump is going to win. How many of them said it? I, I mean, I could go through a list of a dozen of these guys that went out there telling them what God told them, right? And then after them, some have had to apologize. See, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have gone over well in the Old Testament time. Because if there was a prophet among you who prophesied and it did not come to pass, well, he would lose his job by being stoned. So it wasn't too popular for people to say, I'm a prophet, so that they could predict things. But the prophet role was twofold. He would foretell and he would foretell, which is preaching the Word of God. When you see in the New Testament, you know, the gift of prophecy is really 
the exposition, the expounding forth of the Word of God. Isaiah did both. He receives his commission or his conversion in the year of King Uzziah's death. You could read it in Isaiah chapter 6. He accepts the Lord's calling with cheerfulness, although he knew it was going to be tough on him. Jewish history would recall that Isaiah met his death by being sawn in two under the reign of King Manasseh. Pretty lousy way to go. The prophecy is written to Israel. It's written to Israel. And it's, it's very much, you know, it's, it's, it's the, he's the evangelical prophet, and sometimes Isaiah is referred to as the fifth gospel or the first gospel, but it's organized very much like the Bible. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 deal with judgment. The remaining 27 deal with salvation and redemption. Kind of like the Bible. The Old Testament, the 39 books, the New Testament, the 27 books. Gleason Archer said this. He said, Isaiah sets forth the doctrine of Christ in such full detail that it has been rightly called the evangelical prophet. And this book answers the riddle of the Old Testament. This book answers the riddle of the Old Testament. And it's the questions that all religions ask. How can God be merciful compassionate and just, but not leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, 6-7. By the way, we are going to cover a lot of Scripture today. So you're going to hear me call out a lot of different places. If you can't keep up in your Bible, just write down the passage of Scripture, and then you can go to it afterwards. Exodus 34, 6-7 says this, Then the Lord passed in front of him, and proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps the loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generations. This was the word of the Lord, that He is abounding in loving kindness. He is slow to anger. And the book of Isaiah answers that respective question. And specifically, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, which I know most of you know about. And Isaiah 53 has been called the most significant passage of Scripture. It's been called the torture chamber of the rabbis. Why? Because in the Jewish temple, they go through a systematic reading of the books of the Old Testament. But when they get to Isaiah 52, 12, they stop, they skip 52, 13 through 15, and all of Isaiah 53. Why? Because it only points to one person in history who could have filled that role. And that only person is Jesus Christ. It's been called the Jerusalem road of salvation. It's been called the first gospel. It's been called the high watermark of the Old Testament. And it can only refer to one who fulfilled that role. There's, a, there's an interesting video on YouTube done by Jewish Christians in Israel. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see it. But they read, they walk through the streets of Jerusalem and they read Isaiah 53. And they ask the average Israeli bystander, who do you think this speaks of? 
And overwhelmingly, they say Jesus Christ. Overwhelmingly, because what is known of Christ. So open your Bibles to Isaiah. We're going to begin first at Isaiah 52, because really this is where the context begins. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 15. And Isaiah 53 is one of four servant songs found in the book of Isaiah, and it contextually begins in 52, 13. And the question is, who is speaking? It's a prophecy of Christ. It's looking forward to the coming of Messiah, or the Deliverer, God's anointed. Look at 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up greatly exalted just as many were astonished uh, at you my people so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men thus he will sprinkle many nations kings will shut their mouths on the account of him for what he had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand so who is speaking god is speaking here in Isaiah 52, 13. And I want to call your attention to certain key words within the text. In verse 13, notice the word, highly exalted, lifted up. These are terms of deity. These are terms of deity. God is highly exalted. God is lifted up. But according to 52, 13, my servant will be highly exalted and lift it up. We see these words in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has the vision. When he walks, I saw the Lord high and exalted and lifted up. Look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any other man. Astonished. The The definition means to make desolate or to be appalled. Look what he says. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance. And notice that he says he was marred. His appearance was marred. It means literally disfigured. Unrecognizable. Take a look at verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle Many nations, kings will shut their mouths on the account of him. And what had, for what had not been told them, they will see. For what they had not heard, they will understand. I call your attention to the word here, sprinkle. And notice what the word of God says. He will sprinkle many nations. Salvation is no longer going to be limited to Israel. It's no longer going to be limited to the Jews. Because of the work of Messiah, because of the work of Christ, he will sprinkle. And the imagery of that is that of a high priest as he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies. Christ is going to do likewise for many peoples and many nations. He will sprinkle the mercy of God upon them through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And as a result of his agony, he will sprinkle and he will satisfy. So as we look at this, this is the opening into Isaiah 53. And again, I call your attention to the fact that this is about a beautiful Savior. As we look at Isaiah 53, as we start getting down into the text, 
you know, we see that his resurrection is going to stun the nations. That what is going to be, well, what is going to take place is going to be historical. And when he finally takes his throne, when he finally sits upon the throne of the earth, kings are going to be in awe. They're going to come and they're going to bow down before Christ. And as we enter Isaiah 53, we have a summary there in those three verses in 52 that we just read of the expectation, a prophecy of this servant of God. But before we see the beauty, before we see the beauty of this glorious, beautiful Savior, we have to look through some of the horror. There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. And that is true in our lives. There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. Those of us that have come to Christ have come to Christ and we have said, Lord, we crucify ourselves with Jesus. Father, we lay ourselves aside. We lay ourselves aside and our wishes and our desires so that we would be one with Christ. The Apostle Paul talked about that I may know Him and the fellowship of His suffering. Do you hear those words? That I may know Him, that I may come into His presence, that I may be one of Him. But if it takes the fellowship of His sufferings, Lord, that You would unite me with Christ. Paul didn't say he wanted to live many years and have a glorious life and all the others. His purpose was that he would be found in Christ. It's Paul that uses that term. And you see it all throughout the Pauline letters. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. I think about the church today and I think about the state of Christianity today. And I think of so many people who profess the name of Jesus Christ want to do stuff, but they don't want to be found in Christ. Listen, on that great day when we stand before the Lord, we are either going to be in Christ or not. We're not going to be able to testify, Lord, look at all the great things I was able to do in and of myself, by myself. We're either in Christ or we're not. And so as we come into Isaiah 53, we are going to see out of the horror, the greatest cleansing for the human soul, the greatest salvation brought to the human race, brought to mankind. Out of this suffering, we're going to see the greatest demonstration of love ever known. And we're going to all say, hopefully, hallelujah. What a Savior. So I want to say that I believe God is calling Calvary, each and every one of us, to rekindle our affection for Christ. My heart's desire more than anything else is to see the church of Jesus Christ alive, vibrant, anointed, spirit-filled, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ for His glory. You know, they say that someone will not die for what they don't believe. But worse yet is someone who will live for what they don't believe. 
professing something that they know nothing of. Oh, the church needs to come back. We've heard all the great stories of what happened in the past. We heard all the great stories of the previous revivals. We heard all the great stories of all the other uh, uh, events that have taken place in the history of the church. But now it's time for the church to come back to that place and find that in Christ. Therefore, let us enter this hallowed ground that we call Isaiah 53. Humble, amazed at the glory of Christ and this beautiful Savior, Christ, our substitution. Take a look at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Isaiah 53 begins with, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And again, we ask, who is speaking? Who is speaking in this text? A technical reading of the passage would indicate to us that all of the pronouns that are being used throughout the text, they're plural. Take a look. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. He has no stately form of man. That we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Notice in verse 3 toward the end. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the nation of Israel speaking. This is a prophecy of the nation of Israel on that great day of repentance when they realized that it was indeed Christ who was Messiah. That's who this is. It's being spoken of in a plural term. It's being spoken of in the, uh, in the plurality. Look at Zechariah Zechariah 12, verse 10. This perfectly describes that day when Israel will repent. And it reads, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Notice these words now. Notice these words. So that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they will weep bitterly over him 
like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. The nation of Israel. Greatest revival in history is going to be when Israel repents and comes to salvation in Jesus Christ. Israel is here seen crying out in horror and agony. All the verbs are past tense, even in Zechariah 12.10. This is a look back of the nation of Israel in their national day of repentance and faith in Christ. The day of Israel's redemption. And when that day comes, Isaiah 53 will be their confession of repentance. Who has believed our report, Lord? Take a look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, I really want you to see this because they are talking about the Lord of glory. Notice what they say. This servant, when he first came, he came as a tender shoot. That's like a, what's the right word? <laughs> I don't want to say a, a baby, a suckling, right? Yeah, I was going to say like a baby plant, you know. And what is the indication that's there? Is that he came, he was fragile. He was fragile. He didn't come with royal or regal pedigree. Isn't that amazing? He didn't come with a royal pedigree. He didn't come with any regalness. Although he was the king of kings and lord of lords, he came ordinary, in an ordinary town. And notice what he says here. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. That root out of parched ground there. He will arise from lowly conditions. Not, not abundant conditions, but from lowly conditions he will arise. And let me tell you something. Because he had no royal pedigree, and because he didn't come from any kind of, uh, with any kind of fanfare, he was thought nothing. Average Joe, nowhere guy, nothing really that would give him credentials. Listen, even in the scriptures, you know, in John, in John 146, when, when, when Philip goes to Nathaniel and tells him that, I, you know, I, I've met the Messiah, right? And he goes to Nathaniel and tells him, I met the Messiah, Notice the words that Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's, that's where Jesus was from. Could any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's like saying, hey, he's born in Brooklyn. Could the Messiah come out of Brooklyn? No good thing comes out of Brooklyn. And notice the words here. He has no stately form. There it is. It doesn't look like a prince. He doesn't look like a king. He's not majestic in appearance. And notice what it says. He has no stately form of majesty that we, Israel, should look upon him. I don't know if it, 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 I don't know if it does to you like it does to me, but that absolutely blows my mind. 
that the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, appearance at His first coming was nondescript. There was nothing that drew people to Him. There wasn't anything that said, that guy got to be somebody important. That, that person, he must be the Messiah. Just look at him. And here, as we look at the beautiful Savior, what we see in the beautiful Savior, we see this humility from the very onset of birth. We see this this humility of Christ. Let me tell you something. Christ could have been born. He could have been born in the most palatial palace. He could have had trumpeters blast the announcement of His birth. God with His finger could have wrote across the sky, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He could have caused the sun to go dark. He could have caused the nighttime to go bright. He could have manipulated the stars in the heavens to sing joyous songs to the Lord. And I still submit to you that had Christ come in that manner, He still came humble, taking the form of a man. Oh, let us see the beautiful Savior for who He is. Christ in the eyes of unbelieving Israel was contemptible. Contemptible. He was treated with disdain. He was rejected. Notice He says no appearance that we... He was despised and forsaken of men. Being despised is that hatred, is that animosity toward. But not only was he, what not only was there an animosity, but people wanted nothing to do with him. That's the forsaken element. Can you imagine that? Christ's grief was both external and internal. It was external in the sense that he came to save. And was rejected by them. It was internal because it pained him to experience the fruit of their unbelief. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 say this He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But praise God for verse 12. For as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. That's Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted, well familiar with grief. And yet, our Lord 
would endure all of this. That He would save some. We know the majority of the people will reject Christ. We know that most will turn away. We know that those we share the Gospel with, maybe those who go to church Sunday after Sunday and hear the presentation of the Gospel and the glorious Gospel, we know, I often say it, 99.9% people will reject the message of the Gospel. But praise God for that one one one-hundredth of a percent whom God will open their eyes. And you know what we find? We find the glory of a beautiful, beautiful Savior. A beautiful Savior. Look again at verse 3. And like one from whom men hid their face, He was despised. And we did not esteem Him. Note that word, esteem. What that means is we did not render worth to Christ. There was no worth. There was no value. What Israel is saying when when they're looking back on their day of redemption, oh my Lord, we did not know. We did not know. So we thought He was just like anybody else. We thought He was just some, some other person. We didn't esteem Him. And church, may I say something? There's a danger in the church that those who profess the name of Christ don't esteem Him either. If Christ is something that you do on Sunday and Monday through Saturday, He's completely out of the picture, He's completely out of the mind, then you potentially could be guilty of not rendering to Christ the worth of who He is. The Christian comes to worship God. The Christian comes to treasure God. The Christian stores God and Christ in his heart. And the greatest thing that we esteem and the greatest thing that we desire is that we would come to that place where we render worth to our almighty Savior. One of the most beautiful things is as you study this, particularly within the theme of of the beautiful Savior. You see the beauty of Christ and it, and it forces you to look at your life and it forces you to look at what you're doing and what is important and it forces you to contemplate how do I esteem Christ? Listen, you could say whatever you want to say. You could sing as many songs as you want to sing. You could do whatever you want to do. But the key point here, the key issue is here, Do you esteem Christ? What is He worth to you? In the coming days and weeks, we're going to find out. Are we not? Take a look at the way our society is turning and everything that's going on. And it will come down. I think of Pastor James Coates in Canada. How did he esteem Christ? He esteemed Christ to the point that he said, I'll go to prison. I think about those Christians in North Korea. I heard something recently. I don't know if it was North Korea or Communist China. I don't know which one. But one of the ways they found who Christians were is they would 
get a lead that, oh, maybe there's a church meeting at such and such a house. And when the secret police would come in, they would force them to lift up their pants and they would see if their knees were worn and and battered. And they said, those are the Christians because those are the ones that are on their knees praying, so therefore those people get arrested. In China, under the severest persecution, you know what was the qualification for being a pastor? How many years did you spend in jail for the cause of Christ? They weren't graduating them with PhDs and doctorates and all these other different things. They were saying, what were you willing to suffer for Christ? Church, the question needs to be asked of us here in America, here in the 21st century. What are we willing to suffer for Christ? I think about that every day. I never thought in a million years. Never thought in a million years that that would be something that I would have to consider. You know, we're Americans, easy breezy, right? So we have comfort, we have freedoms, our freedoms. Can I make a comment here? I'm all about freedom, okay? I'm all about it. I'm all about the constitutional rights that have been granted us by the forefathers. But do you know the Constitution's not in the Bible, right? You know there's no guarantee of religious freedom in the Bible, right? So if these things are taken away, and I believe they are being eroded, and I believe there is wickedness in Washington, D.C., and I believe we have wicked leaders in this country that are devising ways constantly to tear down not merely the civic fundamental principles that this nation is built upon, but particularly the Christians. I believe that with all of my heart. I pray that the leaders in Washington would repent. And I also pray that whatever they devise for evil will cause consternation and confusion in their own camp. But, let's remember something. God is indeed sovereign on the throne. And if God has willed for persecution to fall upon this land, If God has willed that we as Christians should suffer for our faith, then the only thing that will carry carry through the true believer is how do you esteem Christ? Is He worth it? You know what they told... Pastor Coates had a hearing last week. I read this in the Edmonton newspaper. So this is not a Christian periodical. They had a a hearing for him. It was kind of like a bail hearing. And the judge told him, listen, we can let you go today. We'll let you go today. You just can't go back to the church. You can't go back to preaching. Pastor Coach said, the minute you let me out of here, I'm going back to the church. And I'm going back to preaching. And you know what they said? We're going to confine you until your trial, May 3rd through May 5th. And not merely confine you. By the way, just get this. He could have been put in a minimum security prison. No. 
They put him in a max security prison, 23-hour-a-day lockup. A man who hasn't even had a parking ticket locked up with the most heinous criminals there. They've let child molesters go. And they haven't let him go. Why is he there? Because he esteems Christ. He values Christ. Look at Isaiah 53.3 again. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Notice the we. Luke 18, verses 31 through 33 speaks of this. He said, he took the twelve aside and behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles. Notice this. And will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. This takes despised and forsaken men to a whole nother level. How despised was he? He was so despised that they mocked him, mistreated him, spat upon him, scourged him, and killed him. A.W. Tozer says this, the Christ, uh, Christ paid the price for our salvation. We now pay the price for our identification with Him and our walk and our pilgrimage towards spiritual perfection. Look at verse 4. And this is glorious. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, <clears throat> smitten of God, and afflicted. Where did Christ bear our griefs and our sorrows? On the cross of Calvary. There on the cross of Calvary, as a man, the wrath of God was poured out on His only begotten Son for all who would put their faith and trust in Christ. There on the cross of Calvary, Christ endured physical human pain of a magnitude that we cannot even imagine nor fathom because he was bearing the wrath of millions of people who put their faith and trust in him. There on the cross of Calvary, God poured out on his only son and he bore our griefs and our sorrows. Yet Israel, the Jews at the time, thought he was on that cross getting the punishment of God that he rightly deserved. That's what it means when it says in verse 4, yet we ourselves, the nation, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You read Psalm 22, another prophecy. It's the eyewitness prophecy of Christ on the cross as he's looking down 
from the cross and it's recorded there. And there in, 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 in Psalm 22, Christ looks out and all that have gathered around Him are hurling abuses at Him. They're saying negative things at Him. They're, they're tempting Him and saying, hey, you're the Messiah, come on down, we'll believe you, man. Just set yourself free. Get off from that cross. But there on the cross of Calvary, He bore our griefs and our sorrows. And notice something. I want you to notice this. Christ did this when Israel was in disobedience to Him. So, so much for, i got to make myself perfect before I get right with God. They were in disobedience, and in disobedience, Christ bore their griefs and their sorrows. And He did this for us when we were in disobedience. Christ does not call perfect people to Him. He does not call the religious. He came to seek and save what? That which was lost. Lost. Think of that word. Christ came to save us when we were lost. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. I love this. We did this on Tuesday night Bible study. Absolutely love this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why in the church we make that cry that says, hey, are you lost in your trespasses and sin? Do you not know Christ? Have you not repented? Then come and turn from your sins and turn to Christ and cry out to God for mercy and cry out that the judgment that was poured out on Christ will not be poured out on you, but make Christ that substitute for you so that you would come in faith and repentance and be saved. That meant that you and I were not the best person we could have possibly been. Not religious, not a follower of Christ, but lost, ruined, and rotten to the core. What about you? Christ came to save you while you were lost. And he was, He's here. To save, and if you've never repented of your sins, I'm not asking you if you raised your hand and walked an aisle. I'm not asking you if you said a sinner's prayer. I'm not asking you any of this. What I am asking you, have you ever come to the place of repentance where you have turned from your sin, you have abandoned yourself, you saw yourself sinful before a holy God, and you knew that the justice of God was just around the corner, and you turned to Christ, and you cried and said, Father, forgive me of my sin. Save me. Cause me to be born again. Have you come to the place of salvation and faith in Christ? And if you haven't, I implore you, do so today. Now all of this begs a question. 
What was the motivation of God to do this? What was the motivation of God that He would offer up His only Son? What motivated God to pour out wrath, of, wrath upon sin and to pour that out on His only Son? I'm going to give you three answers. Three answers. Number one, it pleased God. Number two, because of God's great love. And number three, it pleased Christ. Let's look at the first one. It pleased God. Look over at uh, Isaiah 53.10. This is unambiguous. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. It pleased God to offer up His only Son as a sacrifice for sin. It satisfied God. God said, this is good. This is the only way. Through His suffering, many will come to faith. Many will find redemption. Many will be born again. Number two. Because of God's great love. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Notice the words. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace ye have been saved. Underline in that text, because of His great love, it for which He loved us. Not only did it please God, but God had a great love for the elect. He had a great love for all who would come and put their faith and trust in Christ. And so because of that great love, God was motivated by that great love. That when we were dead in transgressions, we were made alive together in Christ. Look at the third motivation. It pleased Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, listen to these words, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame. I want you to focus on that word despising. That, that word despising is that he did not consider the sufferings of the cross, the agony of the cross, the shame of the cross, anything worth it. In other words, he considered it and said, I'll do it. I despise that shame. It's not even worth thinking about. If this is what it takes to please the will of the Father, I will do it. Therefore, it pleased Christ to become a sacrifice for sin. Behold the beautiful Savior, the beautiful Christ, our substitute. So in closing, we need to ask ourselves, what are some conclusions that we can draw from these truths that we have seen? What do we do with this information? 
I'm going to tell you there are four considerations for you and for me. Number one, consider Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, But whatever things gain to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What do you hold on to? What do you cling to? that in actuality you esteem, you place more value on than Jesus Christ. If only the church would consider Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the excellence of Christ, the worth of Christ, we would see that we would be putting so many other different things, whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's status, whether it's comfort, whether whatever it may be, ahead of Christ. So first thing is consider Christ. The second thing is contemplate. And specifically, what does it mean to know Christ? Is it merely understanding a set of truths about Christ? It's not what Paul says. Listen to his words in Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Again, circle that word no. Underline that word no. That word no means experientially. Experientially to know God. And let me share something with you. If you're not in the Scripture, and you're not in prayer, and you're not in fellowship, you know nothing about knowing Christ. I'm just going to tell you that flat out. Because you know Christ through the revelation of God's Word. And you know Christ through prayer and communion with God. And you know Christ as you exercise your spiritual gifts among the brothers and sisters in the church. So one, we're going to consider Christ. Two, we're going to contemplate what it means to know Christ. Number three, consecrate ourselves. The Christian life is a life of consecration. Living God through Christ. Listen to Paul in Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It doesn't say immoral passions and immoral desires. You notice that? It says with its passions and desires. So a lot of us have passions that are, would seem good, Passions for comfort, passions for success in our career, passions for making a lot of money, passions for driving a nice car. But the ones who follow Christ crucify those passions. They lay them aside. They don't want any hindrances to coming into the knowledge and the fullness of Christ. So they live a life of consecration. And let me share something. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice and inconvenience. 
There's no such thing as a convenient Christian life. So we consider Christ, we contemplate, we consecrate. And this is one, this last one is one that I firmly believe. We crave. Passionately, passionately desire Christ. Passionately desire the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Passionately desire to bring glory to God. That has to be the heart of every believer. We passionately. Now, people exhibit passion in many different ways. I'm a very passionate person. I'm very demonstrative. I can get very loud. What I like, I like. What I dislike, I dislike. Just ask me about the Boston Red Sox, and I'll give you a whole liturgy on why I hate the Boston Red Sox. Should I say hate as a pastor? But what I love, I love. Now, you don't have to be like me. Each and every one of you have your own passions. But here's the point. Don't be indifferent to Christ. That's the point. The point if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to love Christ, if your heart is oriented toward Christ, then live Christ and live Him with zealousness and passion. I'm going to end with this verse. Psalm 63. Listen to the words. This is exactly what I I was looking for a scripture that could sum this up, and I think this does a great job of summing it up. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the psalmist. Oh God, you are my God. With deepest longing I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs and sighs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise thee so I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. We started out talking about the beautiful Savior. Christ our substitute. Oh, if we don't see the beauty of Christ right here that God would open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to long for Him, to desire Him, to seek for Him, as the psalmist said. He says He seeks for Him with the deepest longing, that He thirsts for Him, that His flesh longs and He sighs for Him. And let me tell you something, that last part of Psalm 63 there, to see thy power and thy glory. That's my prayer for the church in this nation. To see thy power and thy glory. It bugs me beyond words that the name of the Lord is blasphemed in this country. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
Oh, that we would see the beauty of this beautiful Savior. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we, I wonder if we even scratch the surface, Lord. For the beauty of Christ, Lord, I don't think there's any human being that could declare it, Lord God, and do justice to Christ. But oh God, through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, will you extend your hand, Lord, to convict us, to draw us deeper into you, to love you with a full, pure, unadulterated heart, an uncompromised heart. That we would esteem your worth, my Lord. That we would hunger and thirst for you. That our soul would sigh for you, O God. That we would see thy glory and thy power in the church. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.